Well, hey there, my name is Roy, and I'm the lead pastor here at Arthur Pentecostal Assembly, and welcome to our online service. We're glad that you've chosen to worship with us and join us today. Uh, we hope that today's message will inspire you and, and challenge you in a, in a very good way. Uh, have you ever had a situation where you thought something really wasn't a big deal at the time, only to discover later that it was kind of a big deal? A few years ago, friends of ours, actually more my wife Jen's friends, but this couple that we knew were going golfing in Michigan. And as they got to the third hole or so, they noticed there was a guy golfing behind them uh, all by himself. And so they were on the next tee waiting for the group ahead of them to clear out so they could safely hit when the guy behind them caught up to them and he, uh, he struck up a conversation. Well, they sort of hit it off and they invited him to, to golf with them, just the, the three of them together. And the guy was thrilled because he told them that out of all the, his friends, he's the only one who likes golf, so he always ends up golfing alone. Well, later on in the round, he, the, the, this guy asked our friends, have you ever golfed this course before? Which they said, well, actually, no, we're from Canada. Um, we're only golfing here because we were in town uh, to attend a concert later, later in the evening. Well, the guy asked them, what band were they there to see? And they said, well, it's, it's a Christian band. It's a Christian band called Sidewalk Prophets, to which the guy says, oh, I actually, I know them. I'm their drummer. And so he arranged that night for them to come backstage to meet the rest of the band after the concert. And now every time Sidewalk Prophets uh, comes, to, comes to Michigan, he calls them up and the three of them golf together. See, sometimes you don't realize in the moment how significant your, the interaction is. There's a man named Ignaz Zemmelweis. He was a doctor in Vienna, in, in uh, Vienna, Austria, in 1846. And he worked in the maternity ward at the hospital, helping to deliver babies. Well, later, a second maternity division of the hospital was opened up next door, staffed entirely by midwives instead of doctors. Now, in Europe during that time, the leading cause of death in women during childbirth was this, this fever, a bacterial infection called purpural fever. And so Ignaz Semmelweis began to see a disturbing trend taking place that just completely perplexed him. The rate of death by this fever in the midwife-led division was 1.5 out of every 100 births. However, the rate of death in the doctor-led division was 7.5 out of every 100. It was five times higher in the doctor's, the doctor's division. And he was determined to figure out why was this? Why is this happening? So he began to observe the similarities and the differences. Now, one of the differences was that the midwives would have the women give birth while on their sides, whereas the doctors would have the, or the, the, would have the women give birth while on their backs. So Semmelweis made the switch with the doctors, told them to have the ladies give birth on their sides, and he noticed that it did not lower the death rate at all. Semmelweis also noticed another difference. It was a practice that took place in the doctor's division. Whenever a lady would pass away, a priest would walk through ringing a bell to signify death. Now, I don't know the significance of this, and I'm incredibly grateful as a pastor that's not part of my job description. But Semmelweis wondered if this practice played a role 
in the discouragement, possibly into the health of the other moms. So he asked them to stop doing this, and, and they did. And as you can guess, didn't really have any impact either. The disparity in the moralities between the two visions was, was glaring, and, he, and Semmelweis was, he was determined to figure out what was going on. That's when he discovered something else. The doctors had been recently commissioned to start performing autopsies on those that passed away. This was not a practice that was widely uh, around, and this was something fairly new for them. So in an attempt to get to the bottom of the fever, they would, they would do an autopsy when one of the mothers would pass away. But in doing so, they would often go from performing the autopsy to delivering a baby without washing their hands or sterilizing the instruments. They would, they would use the same instruments on, the, on, the, on the mother that was giving birth. Now, the midwives, this was not a problem for them because they did not have the training or expectation of performing autopsies. So the rate of transmission was so much lower. Now, what you need to keep in mind is in this period during the mid-1800s, nobody knew anything about germs or sterilization. That discovery would not come for another two decades. And so Semmelweis began to ask the other doctors to begin washing their hands and in instruments in chlorine before operating on another patient. He couldn't explain why. He didn't realize chlorine is actually a disinfectant. He knew chlorine masked the smell, which was, pop, was the popular thought of how things were transmitted through odor. So he asked them, he just, can you just try it? And it made a huge difference. The mortality dro rate dropped dramatically. He didn't know why it made a difference. He just knew it was a key difference between what the midwives were doing and what the doctors were doing. Now, we know today that washing your hands and sterilization is a massive deal when it comes to transmission of germs and bacteria, but some of us just kind of stumbled onto it. It didn't seem significant in the moment, but it actually had life and death implications. And that's the analogy I want to kind of apply today when it comes to the words that you and I speak. That they can have life and death implications. See, we understand that words are important, that at least we should. But to say that there are life and death implications to our words, well, it kind of seems a little over dramatic when you first think about it. I mean, are they really that significant? Well, Proverbs 18.21 literally says, The tongue has the power of life and death. Which, granted, sometimes the Bible is very symbolic or figurative in its writing. But as we'll see, this phrase meant it in a literal sense. Again, we know our, our words matter, but life and death? On average, you will speak 16,000 words today. I mean, some of you, you guys are inflating that number, but, but you will speak 16,000 words today, and that's enough to write a 60-page book every single day. And because it's so many, because there's so many words that are spoken, it's easy to think that just well, a few irresponsible words here or there really won't matter that much. But it's like picking up a pile of sand in your hand. There are so many grains of sand in your hand that a few grains that slip through your fingers, well, who cares, right? I mean, are they really that significant? I mean, if I was to drop some in the carpet today, I, I wouldn't even be able to find them. That's how insignificant they are. But the truth is, every word matters. 
Some of you know this firsthand. You had a few words spoken over you that have never left you, which is good or bad. Words that spoke life or words that spoke death. For some of you, someone might have been a boss or a teacher or a parent. And someone said to you, you will never amount to anything. Six words out of the millions that are spoken to you. But here you are years later, maybe decades later, and you just can't seem to shake those six words. Well, there was this girl named Marie. Marie had grown up knowing that she was, she was different from the other kids, and, and she hated it. She was born with a cleft palate and, and had to bear the jokes and stares of cruel children who teased her just nonstop. You know how kids are about her misshaped lip and her crooked nose and her garbled speech. Well, with all the teasing, Marie grew up hating the fact that she was different. She's convinced that no one outside her family could ever love her until she entered Mrs. Leonard's class. Mrs. Leonard had a warm smile, a round face, and, a sh and shiny brown hair. And while everyone in the class liked Mrs. Leonard, Marie came to love her. In the 1950s, it was common for teachers to give their children an annual hearing test. However, in Marie's class, in addition to her cleft palate, she, she was barely able to hear out of one of her ears. Determined not to let the other children have another difference that they can mock or point out, she would cheat on the hearing test each year. The whisper test was given by having a child walk to the classroom door, turn sideways, close one ear with their finger, and then repeat something that the teacher whispered. Well, Marie turned her bad ear towards her teacher and pretended to cover her good ear. She knew that the teachers would often say things like, the sky is blue, or what color are your shoes? But not on that day. Surely, God put seven words in Mrs. Leonard's mouth that changed Marie's life forever. When the whisper test came, Marie heard the words, I wish you were my little girl. Jesus warns us, about the power of words in Matthew 12, 36 and 37. Here's how the message paraphrases it. It says, let me tell you something. Every one of these careless words is going to come back to haunt you. There will be a time of reckoning. Words are powerful. Take them seriously. Words can be your salvation. Words can also be your damnation. I mean, that's pretty powerful. I mean, what Jesus is not saying is that you are saved by your words. What he's saying is that your words reveal who you are and whose you are. I mean, you can claim to be fully devoted to Jesus and then walk out the door and gossip about people and tear people down. And Jesus says, and the way in which you speak is revealing to what's really going on in your heart. And so I wanted to take a look at how words have always held the power of life and death. Let's take a look at Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. Or verse 3, we'll jump in with. Genesis 1 begins talking about how God created the universe. And it begins with nothingness. There's, there's a void. And then verse 3, it says, Then God said. And so into this nothingness, we see, we see that, that God spoke. God speaks into the darkness and says, Let there be light, and there was light. So in the beginning, God uses a tool to bring forth light. What, what does he use? He uses words. 
He speaks the universe into existence. He speaks light into the darkness. Verse 4 says, And God saw that the light was good. Then he separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day and the darkness night. And evening passed and morning came, making the first day. So we see that God uses words to bring about life and to bring about light. He uses his words to build up and to bring light to the darkness and to bring life. And so we see from the beginning the power of words. In Genesis 3, just a little bit further in your Bible, just a short time later, we see that the power, the power that words have in a destructive way. It's here that sin enters into the world. And God has brought forth a life to a man and a woman named Adam and Eve, and he's called them good. And then they come face to face with Satan, who's disguised as a serpent. And he says this, The serpent was the shrewdest of all the wild animals the Lord God had made. And one day he asked the woman, Did God really Did God really say you must not eat the fruit from any of the trees in the garden? And so we see Satan uses his words to attack God's words, the words that were given to Adam and Eve. The enemy uses words to twist God's words to bring death to where there was vibrant life. What we also learn here is this. Satan's words were not true. But that doesn't mean they don't have power. The moment that Adam and Eve believed those words, in that moment, they gave life to those words. It's the same for you. Those words that have dogged you all these years. They don't have to be true to still have power over you. You just need to believe that they're true. And now they bring death and darkness. Let's jump over to the Gospel of John. John's Gospel begins at the very start with, with John introducing us to Jesus. Now Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they, they, they jump right in and they refer to him as Jesus. But John uses this word for Jesus. He calls him the Word. John 1.1 1, 1 says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Verse 2, He was with God in the beginning. Through Him all things were made. Without Him nothing was made that has been made. In Him was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. You see, in Genesis 1, we see God speaking light into the darkness and in John 1, we see Jesus, the Word, bringing light into the darkness. And so John's highlighting for us here the power of the Word. The, that Jesus brings light with him into a dark world, a different dark than existed in Genesis. And then as you read through the Gospels, it becomes apparent that the Word, or Jesus, uses his words to speak life into people. Mark 1.38, Jesus replied, We must go on to the other towns as well, and I will preach to them too. That is why I came. See, the word, Jesus, the word has a word for the people. Luke 4, verse 18-19, The Spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to proclaim the good news to the poor. He sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. So Jesus, God in human flesh, comes and he speaks freedom, and he speaks deliverance, and he speaks healing. And there's this power of life in his words, and there's, there's just so many examples of this as you read through the Gospels. And Jesus is in a boat with the disciples, and there's a storm raging, and they're terrified, and Jesus stands up, and what does he do? Well, he doesn't give some sort of hand motion or anything like that. or it's just, he, he spoke. He spoke 
he didn't speak about it. He spoke directly to it, and he spoke peace, and it died down. John chapter 11, Jesus arrives at Lazarus' tomb. Lazarus, one of his friends, Lazarus has been dead for a few days. And Jesus arrives on the scene, and he, there's this incredible story of how he raises Lazarus back from the dead, brings him back to life. But he doesn't go in to Lazarus and, and do some sort of, you know, kick him in the side, or he doesn't do some sort of like magic levitation sort of thing. He, he, he shouted, Lazarus, come forth. And again, he literally speaks life into death. You see, words are the tool that God uses to bring light into the areas where there's darkness and to bring life into the areas where there is death. And because we are made in his image, and because we've been given the ability to use our tongue to speak, and with that ability, we have this power of life and to speak life into people and speak death into the world around us. Our words are so much more powerful than we'll fully understand. I mean, something that seems insignificant in the moment can be life or death. See, Dr. Semmelweis, he tried to get the doctors to wash their hands. And and the way I presented it to you, I I don't know about you, but it kind of seems clear-cut. Wash your hands, sterilize your instruments, everything will be good. But the doctors actually rejected this message because he couldn't articulate why it worked. He didn't know scientifically why it worked. He just knew it worked. He, he saw the impact. And so he became obsessed with this, this cause. And he was constantly saying, wash your hands, wash your hands, wash your hands. And he, and he just, to the point where he eventually went mad. And, and he was committed to a mental institute at the age of 47. And it was there he would actually end up passing away. Why would they not listen to him? Well, one of the reasons was he couldn't properly explain why his method worked for for people who had devoted their lives to understanding why things work the way they work. But maybe the bigger reason was this. To accept that his method worked was to accept that they were responsible for all the death and suffering that had come up to that point. That it was somehow their fault. Now, we know they didn't do it on purpose. We're talking about men, and, men that had dedicated their lives to saving lives. But to accept this theory was to admit that they were the ones who spread the infection. And that's hard to accept. See, our first reaction is often to reject anything that is self-incriminating. The other reason they rejected the theory is because for them it was too simple. This idea that after all they had studied and all the amount of medicinal research that they had had been taught, that simply washing your hands can save lives, that's just too simple. But when you and I hold up a mirror and deeply examine ourselves, and we're honest with ourselves, when it comes to how we use our words, the natural tendency when you discover something that incriminates yourself, is to reject it. To deny that we have used our words carelessly, that that we've brought pain or hurt or rejection on other people with the things that we've said. And that includes the things that you type. Because that's still your words. Your words are powerful. And your natural tendency will be to play it off like, Ah, what, the, what I said wasn't a big deal. I mean, I was just joking around. They, could, they couldn't have 
They couldn't have thought I was serious. They, they couldn't have taken that to heart. Seriously? We feel like our impact, the impact's not that strong. Like, how can my life, how can my words bring life or death? That's, that's a bit of a stretch. It's too simple. But your, your words can bring life to your kids. Or death. Your life, your, your words can bring life to your friends, to your workplace. Your words can bring life into your school, your marriage. Dr. Semmelweis, his advice to the other doctors was, just try it. I mean, I know I can't explain it, but try it. I know it's true. Try it. Here's what I want you to try. Why don't you try this? Every morning when you wake up, speak God's word. I mean, reading God's word is, is good and it should be a part of your everyday routine. You should do that. But for a few minutes before you start your day, speak God's word over your day. Now, I know some of you are skeptical. It kind of sounds like some psychobabble, like self-help, self-speak sort of thing. But I'm not saying speak your words. I'm saying speak God's word. Speak God's word over your job, your relationships, your thoughts, your attitude. See, Isaiah 55 says, The rain and snow will come from the heavens and stay on the ground to water the earth. They cause the grain to grow, producing seed for the farmer and bread for the hungry. It is the same with my word. I send it out and it always produces fruit. It will accomplish all I want it to and it will prosper everywhere I send it. He says his word is like seed that's planted. When it's planted, it produces fruit. It never comes back void. See, whenever you plant the seed of God's word, it always bears fruit. I think I've mentioned this in a previous sermon, but I'm not good at growing anything. I mean, the only thing I've grown that probably hasn't died is my kids. I, I just can't grow things for whatever reason. But my wife, Jen, and I decided this year that we were going to try to grow uh, vegetables in our backyard. And so we bought this kit from a farm where it came with like these three straw bales and, and the seeds and, and, and dirt to, to grow vegetables right in these, these straw bales. And so we were all in. We planted the seeds. We diligently watered it. Did everything that the kit said, the instructions, the videos, everything. And nothing grew. Nothing. I mean, I, I, I just had straw bales sitting in my backyard. It looked dumb. So I kind of got frustrated after a while, and I thought about all the work we'd done and how much we'd... And I, I just I stopped watering them. Weeks went by, and suddenly sprouts began to emerge. Tomatoes and radishes began to grow. You're going to plant some seeds of God's Word, and you won't see it sprout right away. Don't give up. Keep at it. Be patient. See what happens when you do. We read earlier from Proverbs 18, it says, the, the tongue has the power of life and death. But the second part says, and those who love it will eat its fruit. I mean, you've heard the phrase, you will eat your words. That's what's going on here. Your words are seeds that are planted. Those, those seeds plant fruit. And whatever fruit is produced, you will find yourself eating later. See, if you plant seeds of life, 
you will harvest life-giving fruit. If you plant seeds of death, you will later harvest toxic fruit. Before we wrap up, let me give you a couple homework assignments. I know. First one. We talked about this before. Speak God's word over your life. Here's some examples. You wake up in the morning and you say this. I'm a child of God. The enemy has no hold on me. I'm a child of God. The enemy has no hold on me. Now that's not wishful thinking. That's God's truth. John 1.12 says, but to, but to all who believed and accepted him, he gave right to become children of God. 1 John 5.18, we know that God's children do not make a practice of sinning, for God's Son holds them securely, and the evil one cannot touch them. So you can confidently say, you can say, I'm a child of God. The enemy now has no hold on me. That's not just positive thinking. That's not wishful thinking. That's foundational. That's truth. It, it surpasses what you tell yourself. It surpasses what others say. It's God's word. Now, maybe you're thinking, I don't know, Pastor, that's kind of weird. You want me to talk to myself? Yep. You know why? Because you already do it. You might not say it out loud, but you talk to yourself all day long. You talk to yourself every morning when you wake up. You, you just do it internally, and you say in your mind, you think, oh, it's going to be a hard day. Or, oh, I think I'm too old for this. I, I wish I had more blank, whatever your thing is. I, I, if, only, if only I had, had more of, you know, whatever. And, and we say things to ourselves all the time. And not much of what we say to ourselves is actually rooted in any truth. This is truth. This will change your day. This will change your week. Try it. Romans 8, verses 1, 1 to 2 says, with the arrival of Jesus the Messiah, that faithful, fateful dilemma is resolved. Those who enter into Christ being here for us no longer have to live under a continuous, low-lying black cloud. But a new power is in operation. The spirit of life in Christ, like a strong wind, has mag magnificently cleared the air, freeing you from a faded lifetime of brutal tyranny at the hands of sin and death. Now, for, for those of you that walk defeated because of your past, where you think you're disqualified, that God, God somehow is still disappointed in you, this passage tells me that it's not just the power of positive thinking to be able to say, I'm not my past. My past does not define me. God's grace has set me free, and because I have that freedom, I have the ability to offer grace to those around me. I am free because of grace. I can offer words of freedom to others. This is so much better than the words that I make up for myself that are not rooted in God's word. Words like at times where I say to myself, man, I'm frustrated. I'm done. I give up. I have nothing left to give. And before long, I truly start to believe those things that I've told myself, but they're not rooted in God's truth. And that, sure, I can feel frustrated, but the truth is, the truth is, I'm not done. I do have more to give. Because God has given me his spirit. God has given me grace. And now I have an abundance of grace to give away. This is not self-help. 
This is you speaking God's word into the darkness. 1 Peter 5, 7. Give all your worries and cares to God, for he cares about you. And because this is truth, because this is truth, he cares for you, you can begin your day by saying, I will not, I will not succumb to fear today. I will not fall into this trap of what if, what if, what if, what if. I, I've given my anxiety, I've given my worry and my fear to God because I know that he cares about me, his word says so. 1 Thessalonians 5, 16-18 says, Always be joyful, never stop praying. Be thankful in all circumstances. Man, start your day with that one. Joy is an attitude. So today, I choose joy. God, I'm going to walk with you all day long. I, I will never stop praying. And, and, and I will be thankful. I'll be thankful for everything that comes my way. Whether it's the smallest of things or whether it's something big, I will be thankful. I know some of you aren't convinced. You know why you're not convinced? Because we've seen this type of thing abused, where we see people being told to talk themselves up, like it's all about them. I'm good enough. I'm powerful. I'm unstoppable. Like I'm trying to convince myself. But that's not what this is. This, This is us speaking God's truth. It's not about us. The focus is on his promises, his truth, his word. Second homework assignment. Do an inventory each day of your words. Ask yourself when you lay down at night. Is there anything, else, anything I said today that was toxic? Is there anything that I typed on my computer that was destructive? Is there anything that tore anybody down? Did anything that, I, that came out of my mouth today dishonor God? That's, it's not a lot of fun, I'll be honest. It's not a lot of fun to do, but what you'll find is it'll change you. It'll change you. It'll cause you to be better. It, it might move you towards seeking forgiveness from someone. It may reveal some weak spots in your life. Now, on the other side, the flip side... Also ask yourself, did I use my words to encourage someone today? I mean, it's one thing to just get through the day and say, well, I didn't, I didn't use my words to tear anybody down, but you also have a responsibility to use your words for, for good. Did I, did I use my words to build up people? Did I speak life? Did I bring light into dark areas? I mean, I think in the same way that Dr. Semmelweis pleaded with his colleagues, just try it. Try it. See what impact it has. Try it. It could bring life or death. Let's pray. Father God, there's such a, we have such a responsibility with the words that we use. And every one of us has used, these, used our words irresponsibly from time to time. And God, I guess what would what we're looking to do is we want to be more like you and so as a result we want to we want to use the precious words that we're given on a daily basis to build people to encourage people to inspire people god we want to this is one of the ways that we 
spread love. Not by gossip, not by backbiting, slander. Not by putting other people down so we feel better. But by using the words, every single one of them, to encourage. So God, let us be known by our words. Let us be known that when we walk into a room, we're the most encouraging person that walks into any room that we go into. God, let us understand that words are powerful, that they speak life or they speak death. They bring light or they bring darkness. And we know which side we want to be on. Amen.